Hello and welcome to California Nation. I'm your host, Brian Anderson. Today on the podcast, we're mixing things up a bit. Last week, the Sacramento Bee hosted the California Priorities Summit, an event where we asked influential political figures in California to discuss what should be on the priority list for Governor-elect Gavin Newsom. Now, many of them also chimed in on the midterms and what it means for the future of the Democratic and Republican parties. On this week's show, we hear from three leaders about what they'd like to see from Gavin Newsom. And later on, two political consultants join me to talk about the midterms. And as usual, we end the podcast with our favorite segment, Buzz of the Week. All right, enjoy the show. We are not going to have a circus here. I appreciate the president's tweet when he thanked me. Can you please hug me? <laughs> California's leaders are in open defiance of federal law. You know what, everybody? They never thought we could do it. What's in store for California's next governor? Political leaders had plenty to say last Friday at the Sacramento Bee's California Priority Summit. I spoke with several influencers at the event, and you'll hear from three of them right now. We begin with Kristen Olson. She's a former California Republican Assembly leader who considers her party unsalvageable. She hopes a Newsom governorship could be inclusive to an ever-diminishing cohort of Republicans in California. Here's what she has to say. Yeah, I was very frank about the fact that I think the Republican Party in California is not in a great place right now. Uh, I've spent a tremendous amount of time serving, you know, as a Republican Party leader and official over the years. And I think the first step to fixing a problem is acknowledging we have one. And I believe we are in a place today where the California Republican Party is not salvageable because of the national brand. It has become a toxic brand. And so we have to address that head on if we have a hope of being a viable party again for the future. And I firmly believe the best public policy outcomes are those that are created and crafted by people from different perspectives working together toward bipartisan solutions. So we need a viable second party today, but the Republican Party has a lot of work to do if it has a hope of becoming that party again. That's saying a lot from a former assembly leader that it's not salvageable. It is, and it's been, I'll tell you, it's been a very sad thing for me to have to acknowledge, but I think we have to acknowledge the hole that we're in if we have any hope of of demonstrating to Californians that we should be trusted with their votes again. We have to demonstrate that we truly care about Californians, that we have real answers to the challenges facing our state, and that we're willing to be solution-focused leaders. Now, there's still plenty of races that are going to possibly take as late as early December to find out. But one thing that it does look like right now is we're going to see super majorities for the Democrats in the state Senate, and they'll likely keep their super majority in the state assembly. And for Gavin Newsom, that's just an extra bonus. He's no Jerry Brown. He's going to push the state further to the left. What on earth can Republicans do, and what would you like to see from the Newsom administration? Yeah, it's certainly a challenging situation when there's supermajorities in both houses of the legislature. We did not expect that in the Senate. We really thought they'd have one vote short in the Senate, but here we are, and there will be supermajorities in both houses. So I would really encourage Governor Newsom, Governor-elect Newsom, to reach out to Republicans anyway. I will tell you there are- What incentive is He certainly doesn't have to, but I think he can show 
effective leadership, and I think he has a unique opportunity to be a unifying force in California, despite all the polarization around him, if he will reach out to Republicans knowing there are several serving in the legislature who want to work with him toward bipartisan solutions on housing, on education, on transportation, on homelessness. And I think an effective leader is one who tries to bring people together even when he doesn't have to. Kristen Olson, I appreciate you taking the time. Thank Thanks for you. coming on. Thanks so much. Newsom is a man with many ambitions and policy goals, but at the top of his priority list is the issue of affordability in California, ranging from homelessness to education access to lowering health care costs. John Kapal, president of California's Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, cares deeply about California's economic future, and he has concerns Newsom could put the state in an unhealthier financial position. So let's talk about the challenging times that sure. you expect to be on the horizon. Sure. What's going to be the difference as far as a Newsom governorship than a Brown governorship as it relates to your organization? Well, we're not sure yet because uh, obviously Governor uh, Newsom is, is not in yet. However, um, we know that he has a business background and that's uh, helpful. Uh, the one thing I do hope he focuses in on is the amount of debt load California has. If you add all the debt in California, it's public debt, local and state, it's uh, over a trillion dollars. So uh, we can't lose sight of the management of our financial situation. So we hope that he focuses in on that. We, and we understand that as a Democrat, he's, his, uh, his programs are going to be, he's not going to be a small government advocate, that's for sure. Uh, but having said that, while people can have legitimate debates over the size and scope of government, what we should be able to agree on is making sure that the money we do spend is spent efficiently and in the most effective way possible. If he pursues those policies, I think that's a way to reach out to fiscal conservatives. So give me an example of some policies you would like to see achieved. Well, for example, we don't know where he is yet on high-speed rail. You know, the high-speed rail project is spending $6 million a day for a project that our transportation experts tell us will never be built and will never be cost effective. And not only that, we'll be a net greenhouse gas producer, not a reducer. The whole thing's being financed by cap and trade revenue, the purpose of which was to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So programs like that, he can look at that and say, you know, maybe at some point in the future we can do, deal with this, but there are better ways to do it with the money we've got. My fear is that there's a coming recession and depending on how severe it is, uh, California could be behind the curve relative to other states in weathering a recession. Do you worry about California's economic future should we go to a recession under this governor as opposed yeah. to Brown? Um, I worry about this state. Uh, Are we more vulnerable it, it, under Newsom? Uh, I, I, the jury's out. I, I don't know, but I will say this irrespective of whether or not we have a recession, the middle class right now in California is being gutted, even with a strong economy. And the reason they are is because of things like the gas taxes, housing affordability. If you're a diesel mechanic in the Bay Area, you can't afford rent. If you're a diesel mechanic in Houston, you can buy a 2,200 square foot home. That's the reality. The middle class in California is uh, being gutted. We, ha we heard uh, Cassandra Pye make a, a uh, very good point, and that is 
the people in this room that we were just in are very privileged. We don't, you know, most of the people that are in the room that we're in right now don't really worry about the cost of gas. I mean, it, it's not a big deal. But if, but if you're in Riverside, if you're an Hispanic in Riverside or San Bernardino County, and you're struggling to hold on, um, other states start to look really, really attractive. And I think that is California's weakness. As much as progressives like to pay lip service to income inequality, income inequality is correlated with progressive policies. There's no denying that. There are few people who understand what it's actually like to be governor of California. Gray Davis, the state's Democratic governor from 1999 to 2003, spoke to me at length about what he learned from his time in office. He says if politics were a sport, it most closely resembles steel cage boxing. He was recalled in 2003 and knows all too well about the political pressures a governor must confront. So what makes for a successful transition to power? And what exactly should Newsom do when he takes office? Gray Davis had plenty to say. For Governor Newsom, what would be your tips as a former governor yourself? What are some things that he can be doing right now in this transition phase to set him up for success? Um, I said publicly in the influencer columns that uh, a new governor should pick the most important thing to him. And if there's more than one, pick the hardest and do that first. You'll never be more popular than you are on day one and uh, constituencies will give you uh, the benefit of the doubt early on. They might not do that in year two or year three. So whether it's trying to develop uh, early stimulation and uh, uh, getting children prepared to learn, or whether it's health care, whatever is most important to him, uh, and even if there's a tie, take the hardest. Do the hardest first. What do you think the future looks like for California under this new administration? I think uh, Gavin has nothing but upside. He's, he's a, a thoughtful person. He has a lot of guts. Uh, he's willing to go places other people don't. But he has run about 25 companies for the last 30 years, and he knows how hard it is to keep people in the restaurant business, the wine business, and other businesses that he's helped start uh, employed. And if they don't stay employed, they don't pay taxes, uh, and we have to pay them money. We have to pay them on insurance, uh, unemployment on insurance, or welfare, as the case may be. So uh, I think he's thoughtful, visionary, but also has a businessman's acumen to make sure that he's um, uh, prudent about the amount of money we, we expend. I said out there uh, to, to, uh, in my speech that when you go to um, a department store to buy clothes, everything looks great, but you have a budget, you only buy one or two. You go to an all-you-can-eat uh, buffet, everything looks great, but if you eat everything, you're going to die. So. Prior, prior, prioritizing and discipline are two things that Gavin has, and you definitely need that as a chief executive. What do you think was the biggest learning experience from the time you took office in 1999 to the time you left in 2003? <laughs> the biggest learning experience is you have, to, you have to understand that people will get annoyed with you even if you had nothing to do with the problem. <laughs> so the LA Times had uh, an editorial during the recall, and it had two women standing in the Pacific Ocean, and one said to the other, boy, the water is cold today. And the other one said, yeah, that's another thing I blame Gray Davis for. So, 
And, uh, but uh, on a serious note, I, I remember meeting a woman in Long Beach. She said, you cost my husband his job. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. What department does he work for? Well, he doesn't work for state government. He works for an aerospace company. So. Uh, but how do you take strike the balance between taking ownership of a problem because the public's not going to like deflection? <laughs> I'm just saying you have to be able to accept criticism even if it's not well founded because it just comes with the territory and that you know that's hard to get your arms around but if you get the sooner you get your arms around that that uh, uh, well I'll put it another way I gave a speech at Columbia Law School my alma mater in 2009 I said I'm going to give you a three sentence summary. School is fair, life is not. Just deal with it. Welcome back to California Nation. I'm Brian Anderson. It looked grim on election night for Democrats. Sure, they regained control of the House, but that wasn't much of a surprise. What was a surprise were Republican gains in the Senate and what appeared to be a strong GOP showing. This is what President Donald Trump had to say the morning after Election Day. I thought, it was a, I thought it was a very close to complete victory. When you look at it from the standpoint of negotiation, when you look at it from the standpoint of deal-making, because it's all about deal-making, again, if we had the majority and we had one or two or three votes to play with, we would never, we would have been at a standstill. Trump slammed a long list of Republicans who didn't embrace him. He appeared happy that they lost. Uh, but Mia Love gave me no love. And she lost. Too bad. Sorry about that, Mia. Trump went so far as to suggest things turned out exactly as he wanted, calling the results a great victory that could reduce gridlock in Washington. I think it was a great victory. I I'll be honest. I think it was a great victory. And actually, some of the news this morning was that it was, in fact, a great victory. But if you look at it from the standpoint of gridlock, I really believe there's going to be much less gridlock because of the way this is going than any other way. But in the coming days, the narrative of a red wall taking shape had begun to crumble, particularly in California. Just when you thought California couldn't get more blue, it did. They're guaranteed supermajorities in the state legislature, not to mention as many as six congressional pickups. They've already secured four House seats currently occupied by Republicans. Heck. California Democrats are on the verge of sweeping all statewide contests. Now, regardless of what happened nationally, it's clear a blue wave ripped through California. So what does that mean for the state going forward? I spoke to Mike Madrid and Roger Salazar to get their take on what happened. Thanks for having us. Great to be with you. Roger is a Democratic consultant while Mike advises Republican candidates. The two agreed on many issues particularly the poor state of California's Republican Party. Here's a portion of our conversation. Well, and, and Roger and I have talked about this a lot over the years. I don't believe that the emergence of a new party is going to come from the Republicans or the ashes of the Republican Party. It's going to come from the divisions within the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party 10 is enormous now. <laughs> it's big, right? And you have a rising Latino electorate, which, again, some of the work we've done together, over half of the Latinos aren't in the middle class. Uh, the poverty problem disproportionately affects Latinos. The housing crisis disproportionately affects Latinos. The income inequality uh, issue disproportionately affects Latinos. I mean, this is California. This is the emerging future of the state. Those policy issues are in direct conflict with kind of the, the wealthy white coastal ruling class that dominates the Democratic Party. 
And while they agree on social issues, there's very little that they have in common economically. And while it's not going to be a dramatic transformation of the Democratic Party, there's going to have to be a more robust discussion on what is not working for most of our communities. Uh, and I think we've already seen it. I mean, the last uh, election cycle, uh, you know, with uh, with the, the you know the divide between those who followed Bernie and those who followed Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, the the, the fights at the Demo at the California Democratic Party over the le over leadership uh, in the in the in you know in in the party, uh, those are things that. Again, if the if the if the party itself doesn't address how to sort of bring the you know uh, br to bridge that divide, uh, you know there, there's a there's a fracture risk that uh, you know that, that may may not get repaired. Uh, and again, you know we've been talking, we've been seeing sort of the the you know what what's been happening to the Republican Party, uh, you know, for o almost 20 years now, uh, and. Uh, you know, there are folks like Mike and, and others who have been giving advice to the Republican Party about, on how to, to fix their, their, their problem for 20 years now. Uh, and if you don't listen, this is what's going to happen. Uh, and, and, I, and I think the same thing with the Democratic Party. If we don't figure out a way to sort of heal those, uh, those, those divisions, we're going to have a fractured party. We're going to have an, a, you know, a, a portion of it that's ineffectual. And I don't think anybody gains when, uh, when you don't have, uh, you know, true representation. And, and this is just one thing I remember our first show. We interviewed State Senator Kevin DeLeon, who was unsuccessful in his U.S. Senate bid to unseat Senator Dianne Feinstein. And I asked him about this Clinton-Sanders divide. Mm -hmm. And he said it's becoming increasingly a thing of the past. Do you see it that way? Well, again, I think there are, uh, unfortunately, no. Uh, you know, and, and I think when you look at uh, um, if, if that were the case, uh, you know, I think Dianne Feinstein would have uh, would have beaten Kevin, you know, uh, um, by a much wider margin. This is, you know, for a sitting U.S. senator who had, you know, tens of millions of dollars in her bank account. This is a pretty close race between uh, DeLeon and Feinstein. For a guy who didn't run a campaign, really, I mean, he ran they, they ran the best campaign they could with the money they had, uh, you know, but this was, uh, uh, you know, a really, uh, you know, a low-dollar effort. And to get the kind of results he did against a sitting U.S. senator tells you, uh, you know, that there's that there's a lot of dissatisfaction out there among, among Democrats. And I think, again, if we don't address it, uh, you know, or if, uh, you know, if, uh, if uh, folks like Feinstein ignore it, um, then, uh, you know, we do so at our own peril and our own effectiveness as a party. And I think, again, to dovetail what, what Roger is saying is they're, they're neat. the Democratic Party is struggling with, with crafting a working class message that is resonance. The populist elements of really even the Bernie Sanders movement, a lot of what Kevin DeLeon were talking about, spoke to that. So if you look at the map of where Kevin DeLeon won, and you look at the map of where John Cox won, they're basically the same counties, right? It's basically the same map. And you can make an argument that, okay, it was a pure, a pure anti-Diane Feinstein vote. There's some truth the to that. In the wake of the Kavanaugh hearings. There's, yeah, or, 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 or Kevin's greatest weakness was also his greatest strength. He didn't have the resources to interject himself into the race, and as a result, it became a pure referendum on Diane Feinstein. But that, that, the fact that it is a referendum, I think, is exactly to Roger's point, which is we're, we may be looking at a construct that is less, less, less left and right, and more have and have not yeah. in a state that is becoming increasingly divided by the wealthy and the poor we're less concerned about the size of government and some of the traditional you know lenses we used to look at politics from from the 1980s until now and now i think our class distinctions are much greater indicators of our voting behavior and our political sentiments than than these kind of esoteric academic concepts it's, it's can i make the rent do I still have to work two or three service sector jobs? Are my kids going to a good school? But you're a Republican consultant. How, who are the Republicans trying to reach, and who should they try to reach? 
Well, the, that's a good question, and those are two diametrically opposed demographics. The Republican Party, as it stands right now, is trying to reach to largely non-college-educated, older, white males, which is the fastest shrinking demographic nationally. And it's, I don't want to say it's, I mean, look, it's, that, that constitutes a good 25, 30% of the electorate. So Republicans have a hard floor and a hard ceiling, right? Which the John Cox campaign was that, you know, exactly that. It was a completely regressive campaign. People have been, you know, critical of me saying that publicly because it's, it's true. Hello and welcome back to California Nation. It's time for our favorite part of the show, Buzz of the Week. I'm joined by a fellow colleague, Ryan Sablo. Ryan, thanks for coming in. Hey, thank you. So one thing I couldn't get off my mind was the devastating fire, and it's the deadliest wildfire in California this year. And in light of this, it's important to try and think of some positive stories that have come out of this. And you had one that really touched me. Can you just Give us the, the cat story for our listeners who aren't familiar. Yeah, so uh, a couple days ago, I was I had just shot some video from inside the fire area. I was um, driving down uh, Pence Road, and uh, I had seen a the silhouette of a cat underneath a, uh, a one of the few unburned cars that I actually saw, and uh, so I decided I was gonna. I had to check it out, so uh, I shimmied under the car and I saw this really pretty, well, formerly pretty cat um, with these really beautiful blue eyes that had been underneath that car for days and with no water. And so I went back to the truck. I had carried a dog food bowl in my truck for my dog um, and I put some water in there and tried to get the cat to come over to the water and the cat didn't want the water, but she wanted to come to my outstretched hand. She was so scared. So I, uh, I grabbed her by the nape of the neck and carried her out and I, I drove her down to Chico and I, po I posted a picture on social media uh, and, and her owner actually ended up seeing her and uh, was reconnected with her. I was able to get her to, the, to her owner and she, her name is London and her family had to leave um, while the flames were burning. And they still have two cats missing up there. Well, I, I've got to thank you so much for sharing that. And in light of a lot of tragedy that you're going to be going back up to today, it's, it's certainly um, very much appreciated that, that you would take the time to share this and that something maybe a little bit good could, yeah. could happen every now and then. Yeah, it's been rough up there for... Uh, uh, there's a whole team of volunteers going around looking for animals that people have lost. And while I was at the vet center, you know, tr checking this cat in, you know, there's all these families who are, who had to leave and their cats and dogs. People say, well, how could you leave your cat and your dog? And it's like, well, flames are racing toward your house. Um, you, you're doing the best to grab everything that you need to do. The animals are scared and they're hiding from you which they almost, you know, they've, they've all, they, a lot of them are, there's nothing you can do. And so they left. And so I'm at this uh, clinic and there's just people just flipping through these pages of these pictures of cats and dogs that have been badly burned and that were there. And a lot of people couldn't find them. 
I mean, it's just really tough. It's hard to see, you know. So, but yeah, and um, I would imagine that the uh, they have a bunch of the unburned animals. They're the 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 lesser burned animals at the uh, fairgrounds, and I have a feel or at the airport, and I have a feeling a number of folks have been going looking, and it's just a really really sad thing to see. And if something good can come out of it, just one thing, what's the biggest way people can can contribute and help? Well, I mean, the, the main thing is um, these places and disasters get overwhelmed with people bringing stuff. Um, I saw that post. You sometimes <laughs> unnecessary things. Well, <laughs> oftentimes. Um, a friend of mine who lives in Chico just posted a picture of just what looked like a garbage dump at the, at the Toys R Us building in Chico where people have just brought in piles and piles of things that... So what can actually be done to help? The one thing that the disaster agencies or the disaster experts I've talked to, because I wrote this story after the car fire, is that everybody wants ca everybody can use cash and gift cards. Um, a lot of people don't feel comfortable giving cash because they feel like it's going to get sucked into some charity's overhead. Um, so gift cards, if that's how you feel, is the best way to go. And if you really wanted to help pets, I mean, a Walmart gift card, a gift card to Petco or something like that, or donating even to some of these, um, uh, some of these uh, veterinary clinics in Chico, just giving cash to them, I'm sure that they would take it. I mean, I, I don't know. I haven't interviewed anyone there, but that's the kind of thing you could help. Just don't bring a bunch of stuff that's probably just going to get stacked up somewhere and it's going to cause a bunch of relief workers, you know, weeks from now to have to ship it to the dump or someplace because they just have no place to put it and that's just more work for a bunch of volunteers. Ryan, I could talk to you forever. I know you got to get back out there and I appreciate you taking the time and your thoughtfulness and your, your diligent reporting. It's It's been a pleasure having you. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Stay safe. Okay. As of Wednesday morning, 48 people have died in the campfire, making it the deadliest wildfire in California's history. The death toll is only expected to increase as dozens more remain missing. For the latest updates, please visit sacb.com. You can also check our show notes for more information on how to help. We wish you a safe and happy Thanksgiving. We'll be back in your feed soon. Until next time, I'm Brian Anderson. This is California Nation.